When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is a crowd podcast. We didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Wheel of Fortune, Sally Ride, Heavy Metal, Suicide, Foreign Debts, Homeless Fest, AIDS, Crack, Bernie Gets, Hypodermics on the Shore. Ow. Hello again, and welcome to episode 118 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the history podcast that cracks open Billy Joel's rock'em sock'em, action-packed hit song for the most surprising stories of the late 20th century. I'm Katie Puckrick. I'm Tom Fordyce. Tom, I'm kind of wondering how we got to where we are today, because Billy thinks it might have something to do with hypodermics on the shore. Hmm, and if that doesn't make you feel queasy enough, Katie, let me give you the alternative name for this period, the syringe tide. So this was an environmental disaster in 1987 and 1988 in Connecticut, in New Jersey and New York, where significant amounts, Katie, of medical waste, including hypodermic syringes and raw garbage, washed up onto beaches on the Jersey Shore in New York City and on Long Island. That is really, that necessitates your jelly shoes if you're going to venture out <laughs> for a stroll on the beach. Of all the things that you like to see on the beach, Katie, it might be a bit of seaweed, there might be some crabs, there might be some sandcastles left by previous visitors, and maybe at worst a couple of sticks from ice lollies. The point where you see a hypermix syringe is the point where you never want to go back to that beach ever again. You might not even want to leave your house. Tom, this does make me wonder, what is the weirdest thing that you have ever found on the beach? <laughs> <laughs> or left on the beach? Well, <laughs> I do remember the family holiday to France where <laughs> we, what? We, we started out at a well-populated end of the beach, uh, went further down the beach looking for a little bit more space, and that was when <laughs> my little sister said, why are all those people wearing pink swim costumes? And we realised we'd ended up in a very different sort of beach, which was quite surprising to the 14-year-old me. What about you, Katie? Oh, I see. So the pink costumes weren't actually costumes. There wasn't much costume there. Yeah. Um, Actually, mine was kind of in the same area. I was probably about 12, and I found a well-thumbed copy of a brand new, very sexy book by Erica Jong called Fear of Flying. And oh my goodness, was that ever a beach read? (laughs) Uh, The term zipless 
F U C K uh, was the was the phrase that paid from that book, and um, I learned a lot as a twelve year old about what adults got up to, and that was quite an eye opener. The character in the book goes on a sexual journey, a sexual quest to discover her essential self that I could only hope to emulate, and it's still <laughs> on my bucket list. Anyway, uh, we're not going to be talking about that so much. We'll be talking about fluids. Of a different sort today, I do believe. Katie, we will, and our guest today is an international science and policy coordinator for Healthcare Without Harm, which is an international NGO that works to transform healthcare worldwide. Her name is Ruth Stringer. Ruth, welcome. Hi. Lovely to have you on the podcast, Ruth. The syringe tide slash hypodermics on the shore, every bit as horrendous and Katie and I have imagined. Oh, absolutely. What you don't know is how common it is. I mean, in this case, what do they come from? The Fresh Kills Landfill, which is very famous amongst people like me. It's on Staten Island up in New York. And it spreads syringes and medical waste all down the, the coast of New York and New Jersey. So as a New Jersey person, yeah, I can see why Billy Joel referenced it. Yeah. And, and I'm just wondering, like, how does it even get out of there? Like, what's it supposed to do? It's supposed to just quietly sit in some sort of container? Yeah. I mean, the landfill is supposed to contain stuff forever, but they leak all sorts of things. Landfill leachage is a really nasty substance. They catch fire the entire time. And I don't know exactly how those syringes got out of there. Um, it could have been a storm blowing stuff. It could have been a collapse. You know, as I say, it, it happens everywhere. We're looking at about 11 million tonnes of plastic getting into the sea each year. Oh and the gosh. last big wash-up of syringes on the Jersey Shore was in 2021. I can sort of see it evolving like some sort of bad horror movie, like one needle, then two, then 20, and then you look up and as far as the eye can see out to the horizon, syringes. I mean, how typically did these sort of things appear? Are they just sort of tangled up in the seaweed or are you just happily swimming along and then needles are poking you in the eye? Yeah. Could be either of those. Um, it's really not uncommon to find them on beach cleans. I think the worst thing would be when it's buried in the sand and you don't see it until you step on it. Ugh. Ugh. And what is this medical waste? Like, what's, where does it come from? And, and what is the form that this waste takes? Actually, most medical waste is just your average garbage. Um, there's only about a quarter or a third of it, depending on where you are, which is things like syringes and bandages and so on. And then maybe 1% will be, you know, toxic chemicals, leftover pharmaceuticals and stuff like that. If someone like the US, you're looking at a good 10 kilos of waste per hospital patient per day. In low-income countries where I do a lot of work, it's less because there's they don't have such comprehensive healthcare and they don't throw away as much garbage. This was a huge deal in 1987 and 1988, Katie. Not surprisingly... The reports of the sewage spills and the medical waste on the beaches drove away hundreds of thousands of holidaymakers, cost the tourism industry on the Jersey Shore more than a billion dollars in lost revenue that summer. It's an extraordinary thing. And you imagine being the people who run the businesses along that beach who have had nothing to do with the medical waste and it ruins their businesses. Well, this is the thing. I, I wanted to ask Ruth about this because uh, presumably medical waste isn't 
the only kind of pollution that happens on beaches. And I'm wondering whether, like, why was this seen as so egregious? I mean, I know it's all gross and yuck, but you you do often hear about, oh, there's a sewage leak or there's some kind of like red tide where you're not supposed to go into the water because there's, you know, algae bloom. So why was this hypodermic tide seen as especially terrible? Well, I mean, who wants to step on a dirty syringe? Um, <laughs> Not people me. are rightly concerned about them. Quite apart from anything else, if you look back at pandemics, I mean, you know, COVID was the second global pandemic of my lifetime. The first one was HIV. Um, sharing needles was one of the things that started that spread. Same thing with Ebola. Nurses used to use syringes again and again and even sharpen the needles because that's how often they use them. And actually, Ruth, you make a very good point. So when this happened in 86, 87, this would have been the height of the the AIDS crisis and people's fear around it. So do you think that contributed to how upset people were about this? I'm sure it would have done. I'm old enough to remember the the beginning of HIV, and it was so frightening. There was no cure, and all these. My sister was a nurse at the time, and she was caring for these, you know, young men the same age as her, and they didn't know what was wrong with them. All they knew that they was, was that they were going to die. But you know, the needles still spread diseases. You know, in Europe and so on, we're very lucky. In other parts of the world. People actually go looking for syringes that have been dumped because they can sell them and make a few pennies. And the rag pickers get three, four, five needle stick injuries every day. And where does this happen in the world? Anywhere where there's, you know, poverty and someone willing to buy syringes. It's best documented in South Asia, places like Pakistan, Bangladesh, Nepal, India, and so on. This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Hello, Fire listeners. It's Tom here. I hope you're enjoying the series. I wanted to tell you about BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses in life, big and small. A lot of the people we talk about in this series definitely did. And as we know, if we keep those stresses bottled up, it can impact us negatively. That's where therapy can be great. Therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma. It can help you understand the way that your brain works and why you feel a particular way. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's all online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Fire listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com WDSTF, as in, we didn't start the fire. So, that is betterhelp.com WDSTF. Eat stress-free this spring with Factors delicious ready-to-eat meals. Always fresh and never frozen, each meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. I eat flexitarian, so with a weekly menu of 35 options, there's plenty for me to choose from. 
So last night I had the Moroccan style almond crusted salmon. It was absolutely delicious. These are no fuss, no mess meals. Factor eliminates the hassle of prepping, cooking or cleaning up. Simply heat and savour the good stuff. With over 60 add-ons like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks and smoothies, there's plenty of options to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. Plus, you can customise your weekly meals and pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast premium meals without the need for cooking. What are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 and use the code WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code WDSTF50 at factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Casey, sometimes uh, there are different ways to gauge how big uh, a news story something was at the time. We obviously use Billy Joel as <laughs> yes. our yardstick. If you wanted instead to use The Simpsons, there is a Simpsons episode entitled, very cleverly, The Old Man and the Sea Student. Principal Skinner is punishing his students. He sends Millhouse to the beach to, quote, pick up all this medical waste that has washed up on the shore. Millhouse, Bart's friend, of course, accidentally pricks himself on a syringe, to which Principal Skinner says, well, just keep working. You'll prick yourself with the antidote sooner or later. Oh, that that's quite telling. I mean, what about that, Ruth? It's interesting that uh, a famous cartoon series even picks up on it and turns it into a joke. I mean, that does give you an idea how top of mind this was. I mean, was there a sense, do you think, at the time that we were sort of helpless? These dangers could be visited upon us at any time if if people who were in charge of maintaining this medical waste couldn't keep it contained. Well, I don't know if people have a sense of it, but it's very real. Just just look at COVID. Yes. Or again, you know, any sort of disaster. Even so, the 2020 one syringe storm, which maybe people didn't pay so much attention to, that was just diabetics flushing their insulin needles down the toilet. And then when you've got a big rainfall in New York, the sewers overflow and everything gets washed out into the sea. Now, you won't have seen the sewage. You'll just see the syringes. Mm. At, um, yeah, the... People aren't paying enough attention to the pollution of the rivers. I mean, in the UK now, right? Where we're all concerned about the sewage in the rivers and on the beaches. It is interesting to me, Ruth, how uh, medical developments and new diseases, we talked about AIDS and then COVID, generates a, a brand new kind of pollution. I mean, when COVID hit, you would see face masks all over the street and, and rubber gloves. I'm wondering... How far back in history does this go? I'm wondering if, for instance, during the Black Plague, would you have seen clove-studded pomanders strewn around the streets? I mean, um, obviously, medical waste and, and needles are a, a 20th century phenomenon. But do you think that this is something that has always been the case, that there's always been the, the flotsam and jetsam of, uh, of uh, you know, human garbage? 
oh, there always will have been. Archaeologists love them. You get a midden where people have thrown all of their garbage along with you know everything else that the humans produce, and they, you know you can dig through one of these and find all sorts of things that have been left behind. But I mean, I remember in the London in the the 80s, then every hospital used to have its little incinerator. And they were so bad that even the one in London was dropping little bits of charred bandage onto the road. Oh, so it would just kind of go through the smokestack and then go poof and drop on, on the street outside? Absolutely. And in the poorer countries, they don't even have that in a lot of the times. And the stuff is taken out the back and burned. Or even, so we'll stick with the syringes a bit. So 13 billion COVID vaccinations were given in the last few years. And people, there's, there's a whole series thing called the cold chain, which is a, you know, designed for vaccines all over the world. And they put a huge amount of technology and skill and everything into getting the, the vaccines and the syringes to wherever people need them. And they don't put any effort into bringing them back and disposing of them. What they tend to get is a, um, a yellow cardboard box that's designed to be burned. And so you just put all your syringes in and then you take it out the back and put a match to it, which is a crazy end to such a you know high-tech, life-saving endeavor. Hey, yeah, take it out the back and burn it. And is there a problem with burning? Like, is it bad to, to be breathing in that smoke? Is it toxic? Yeah, well, it's carcinogenic. Mm. It's only paper and, and only a paper and plastic. But you don't need to do that. I mean, I love vaccination waste because you can pretty much recycle all of it. Oh, I'm just wondering, Ruth, because sometimes there is, if not a, a silver lining, then there is something good that can come out of these horrific incidents that take the attention of the media. So I'm wondering if after the syringe tide because it was such a big deal in the States and the effects were so obvious, whether legislation followed as a result of that that perhaps wouldn't have followed had we not seen something quite so horrific. Absolutely. I mean, they did quite a lot of clean-ups to stop this sort of thing happening, although the, uh, the actual businesses that they were impacted were never compensated. But globally, this is where you know, we don't have that legislation in a lot of countries, and that's why... There's, you know, this is it's still a problem in all sorts of parts of the world. You know, having people right now flushing di their insulin syringes down the toilet, that's pretty bad control. And having then the sewers overflowing onto the beaches, that should have been fixed. It's interesting how people just universally think that toilets are the big, you know, the great disappearing device, <laughs> whether it's mm -hmm. whether it's Donald Trump just putting his, you know, ripping up his briefings and, <laughs> and flushing it or people just flushing their syringes. It is that out of sight, out of mind idea. I'm interested in getting into having a better awareness of, of where this waste actually comes from, because it's not just hospitals, is it? There's mortuaries, mm -hmm. there's there's blood banks, there's animal research, autopsies. I mean, you start to think it starts to turn into kind of a uh, Frankenstein's monster of uh, different gruesome sources of human effluvia. Absolutely. I mean, it comes from wherever people are and wherever people are being, you know, are ill. People underestimate the amount that happens in the home. 
Now, just to, to shift from syringes a little bit, um, people are always concerned about the pharmaceuticals coming out through the sewers of hospitals. But actually, most of us that are taking medicines are at home. And so it may be not be quite as concentrated, but the vast majority of it is coming out through domestic sewage treatment works. And they haven't put enough investment in those to stop the, um, the pharmaceuticals coming through and going into the river. Then that, you know, it's going to um, impact on the wildlife in the river. They may be getting a small dose, but they get it every day. And there's a very famous case in, in North London, again in the 80s, um, where they realised that the, the fish were becoming hermaphrodite because of the pharmaceuticals coming through the sewage treatment works. I think this is a really interesting point, Ruth, because when we hear about things like the syringe tide and we find out that it came from a landfill site, it's easy to put the blame on other people. But the way that we're all living our lives at the moment has an impact on things like this, finding them, their way into our water systems. Yes, but you can't expect the individual to do something about that. What are you going to do? Not take your medicines? It's got to have a systemic approach. One of the things that's really happening at the moment that's really important is we're, we're in the middle of negotiating um, an international treaty to stop plastic pollution. And that should be completed ideally by the end of 2024 and then will you know, come into force thereafter. So it's stuff like that that is going to stop, hopefully, the tide of pollution of, of plastic into the sea. Um, and then medical device manufacturers, they need to be thinking better about how they design them. For example, the UN, I think, sent out 85,000 tonnes of PPE to different countries to try and protect the healthcare workers at the beginning of COVID. Half of it was unnecessary, but they had standard packs with everything in it and they just used the stuff they wanted and the rest got thrown away. Those are the kind of solutions that are going to be needed. Yeah, it seems like a, a lot of attention, a lot of, well, maybe this is where AI can come in and uh, customize these these packs and these treatments for different countries. But it's interesting that it doesn't seem like there's a lot of oversight in the, in the medical industry in terms of pollution, because I don't know if there's a sense that, hey, they're saving our lives, so let's not get too fussy with them. But um, it seems that uh, they're not as responsive to monitoring pollution and waste generated by the industry. Is, is that a correct perception? Well, in the high-income countries, there's definitely strict regulations. But, you know, two-thirds of the, um, the low-income countries, they just don't have that at all. But they do keep on negotiating exemptions for themselves. Exactly that. Hey, we're saving lives. Can you just let us out of these environmental regulations? And that's got to stop. That's one of the things that my colleagues and I are saying at these negotiations. It's like no exemptions for healthcare. We want the products to be as good or better than everything else, not, you know, falling behind. Ruth, the, the likes of Katie and I will, will only see these sort of incidences like the syringe tide when they actually come to pass. But I'm sure someone like you, you, you see the, the near misses. You see the times where things could have happened and we got lucky. Maybe something else happened. So how optimistic are you with all that you see that we're going to find a workable solution to this issue? Well, the solutions exist or are very easy to set up. That's the thing. It's just the will to do it and the money to do it. I mean, a decent medical waste management system 
is not rocket science and it's going to cost about 1% of the budget of a healthcare system. Just got to put the money in. Just got to want to do it. But the, the good news is that, you know, we know how to do it um, if people are willing. And why is there a lack of will? Lack of bandwidth, lack of priority, lack of money overall. Um, just speaking for the UK, I mean, our health service is not nearly as well funded as it should be. It should be getting an extra 3% every year just to keep up with inflation and people, the ageing population and more sophisticated treatments always becoming available. Then you go to a low-income country where you may be looking at basically an annual budget of like 50 or or $100 per person per year. It's very hard then to, you know, to find the, the money and the time to, to deal with it. COVID was an extra strain. People suddenly became concerned about medical waste, but they were desperately trying to save lives in that case, and they really you know, didn't have the bandwidth. It's interesting to me that it does take something like AIDS or COVID to make people aware of these other issues, or they're almost like side issues that that are on our periphery. And then, then when you're, you know, stepping on a, a needle on a, a foreshore, or you're tripping on a, a discarded mask, you start to realize, you know what, there's illness in the world, and the illness has paraphernalia that can also make us ill. I was interested to read when I was prepping for this conversation, uh, the World Health Organization has eight types of waste, and I'm sure you're familiar with it, but it includes not only the sharps waste, the syringes and the needles that we're talking about, but uh, radioactive waste, and there's um, there's chemical waste. Like once you start focusing on it, you just sort of feel like there's peril at every turn. And I'm wondering if you, as an expert, Ruth, do you kind of like walk down the street with your radar on, noting these things with your X-ray vision? Like there's a an extra layer of of, of things that could possibly hurt us. Oh yeah, I can spoil any menu. I can tell you what's in you know <laughs> <laughs> what's in your salad. You know. <laughs> We won't go down that route or you'll never eat again. And I used to um, spot tankers in the way that some people play car cricket, you know, looking out for a red car. Yeah, well, I'll be looking out for flammable and toxic tankers going down the road. You are so fun, Ruth. (laughs) But, you know, thank goodness, because you're you're the one trying to keep everybody else safe. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the the way to do it is, is prevent it. You know, what we advise the hospitals to do is there's just a little device called a needle cutter. And as soon as you um, you do, you know, give an injection, you just snip the needle off and the end of the tip of the syringe. So you can't put another needle on. So even if you know, so they're no longer any value to these crooks who will repackage them and resell them. Mm. And suddenly you've got a potentially recyclable material. Like I said, you know, we did some great experiments in Nepal where I do quite a bit of work. And we dismantle a whole load of expired syringes and, and vials and stuff like this. And we worked out a system to, to handle it safely. So no one's going to get you know, a needle in their fingers. And we are able to actually sell all of it apart from the actual needles. There were recyclers willing to take it off our hands. And what was it that actually brought you to this mission of yours? Uh, I started out as actually as a, a scientist for Greenpeace. 
Um, and so in those days, I would be analysing toxic waste and telling them which pipes were the ones that would be most fun to block. <laughs> and then you, you go from that into policy work, sort of there's a whole treaty on to try and control people exporting hazardous waste from rich countries to poor countries to, to try and get around the regulations and save money. But then so after policy and science, what really matters is implementing stuff, is getting it done. And so that's um, when I moved to Healthcare Without Harm, because it allows me to work directly with hospitals and do things like, hey, look, here's this thing. Cut the tip off your syringe. Magic. Job done. It's now safe. It's now recyclable. Another thing that we've done, which is really could make such a difference, is just putting biodigesters into hospitals. Because actually, a third of what comes out of the back of a hospital is organic matter. And most of it's just food, kitchen waste. But then there's other stuff as well. We, you know, family program, we won't go into the details of that. But I mean, that, if there isn't a proper system, then that's going to end up on the streets. That's going to be attracting dogs and cats and flies and cockroaches and everything. Whereas if you build a great big underground tank, slap in some cow dung to start it going and then you put the waste in and it magically goes away. It's a composting situation. Mm -hmm. Without air, it's called anaerobic digestion. And what you get out the top is methane. You pipe it into the kitchens and it saves you know some of the money on your cooking gas. It's all perfectly, you know, there's, like I said, it's solving problems, making a difference. It's so much fun if you can actually... Uh, you know, find a way in and, and, and a practical solution. Katie, this is exactly the sort of optimism that this show can get behind. Yeah. Um, Ruth, you touched on this earlier, but since we've started talking about this in broader terms, I'm really interested in the issue of sewage in British waterways and in British seas. Someone who does, I do quite a lot of swimming in a nearby lake, in a nearby river, off the coast in the summer holidays. How close are we to getting a workable solution to this? Or are the privately owned water companies going to keep getting away with it? Well, that's entirely up to the government. When the clean, the bathing waters directive came in in the EU in the, it would have been the, the mid to late 80s, I don't remember exactly. Um, and, you know, the UK and Spain were the last countries to comply. So we used to have dirty beaches then. And because of the EU legislation, we were forced to clean them up. And I was kind of horrified at how quickly after Brexit, the government, despite saying that one of the advantages of leaving the EU is that we would have better environmental regulation, well, they've clearly just let their guard down. And so we're swimming through sewage again. It's a disgrace. And, you know, just like in the US, if there's too much rain, the sewers will overflow and anything that is washed off the roads or, you know, has been thrown in flush into the sewers, it's going to end up in our rivers and beaches. Well, that's put a little damper on my idea of doing of doing wild swimming, Ruth. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Look online. There are apps that will tell you where it's safe. Um, we'll give you updates. And there are organizations like Surfers Against Sewage who are fighting the good fight to, to try and roll this back. So swim with caution, but swim, please do. There's nothing more joyful. I, I grew up on the beaches, so don't let it put you off. Just trust 
but verify. Casey, I know a couple of spots. I'll show you the ropes. Okay, good. Thank you, Tom. Well, Ruth, it's been wonderful having you on the pod today to deal with a subject which I think Katie and I thought would be chastening, but you have shone both lights on that and shone light on the future and left us with a sense of optimism. Thank you very much. I'm Alison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Our lives were never the same after we learned our 21-year-old daughter, Kristen, was murdered by her ex-boyfriend. It's a parent's worst nightmare. How much did we really know about domestic violence back then? Clearly not enough. Now we know plenty. We know domestic violence, or DV, can happen to anyone. One in three women suffer physical violence at the hands of intimate partners during their lifetimes. One in three. I'm Bill Mitchell, host of the When Dating Hurts podcast, and my interviews with DV counselors, law enforcement, and especially actual DV survivors give the pandemic of domestic violence the attention it deserves. The When Dating Hurts podcast. It's a series of lives being saved. Thank goodness for people like Ruth, Katie. I know, although I did have to laugh when she thought it was a family show. Are families listening to this? Um, I did want to hear all the nitty-gritty. Oh, she did remind me, though, when she was talking about how basically we're all wallowing in each other's garbage and our own. It reminded me of um, showing some friends from California around London, Soho. <laughs> and um, I was trying... Sounds like a sitcom already. <laughs> and I, was, I thought, oh, I'll just show them down this very picturesque alleyway. And it had just turned dusk. And we walked... <laughs> So slightly downhill into this alleyway. Slightly it was cobbly. It was cobbly, yes, yes. Dimly lit. A dimly lit. Maybe there was a gas light flickering <laughs> on the wall. And um, it looked like there was a, a stream of water running mm. down either side of this Lovely. alley. It was a bit mysterious because it actually wasn't raining. And as we stepped into the archway, and a London bobby stepped forward and blocked her way and said, Do not advance further. It is filled with wee and poo. And my American friends could not believe that a British policeman was using the childish words wee and poo. And they still laugh about that today. Anyway, we're awash with sewage. That's what we can learn about this incident. Well, if you would like another podcast to listen to before Katie and me return to your ears, I would say you have to listen to .com The Hacking. It's perfect if you'd like a little bit more science. .com is our text trend. And it's you, Katie, it's you. It is, it is. It lifts the veil on the internet. Series 3 is out now, and it's about the complex world of ransomware and cyber attacks. Because in this brave new world, nothing is too small or big to be digitalized, including acts of war. Russian ransomware attacks have almost doubled in the past few years. And at this very moment, cyber criminals are screwing up 
supermarkets, they're crippling schools, they're futzing with dentists, kindergartens, hospitals, oil pipelines, all in the name of money. And I want to know who, Tom Fordyce, and why. So do I, Casey, which is why I'm going to listen to .com, the hacking. If you would like to get in touch with the story or maybe a guest idea, you can contact us on email at fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk. On social media, we are at Spread That Fire on both Instagram and Twitter. Do not forget, dear listener, to check out our merch collection at spreadthatfire.com. And listeners, I want to meet you back here next week for our next episode, which is China Under Martial Law. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.